All right, good morning once again. Man, I love it that we get to spend time like this together. And I feel like we're uh, doing some really meaningful things this morning. And so I'm glad that we get to share that together. Uh, this morning we are continuing in our Law and Prophets series. This is week number 16. And today's message is called Kool-Aid Fountains. Kool-Aid Fountains. One time uh, during, during grade school, I believe it was during the fourth grade, uh, there was a pitched campaign, a battle for our young hearts and minds uh, going on at our school. We were being urged to vote for class president. <coughs> Does anyone remember these like harrowing times in your upbringing, elementary school? I mean, it's like there we were all gathered in the lunchroom, which was also the cafeteria, uh, which was also the gymnasium, or the, I'm sorry, it was one of those lunchroom gymnasium combos. So it had all the tables, but it also had a stage and it also had basketball hoops. Uh, at the old Hickory Hills Elementary School, we were hearing speeches. We were gathered for the purpose of hearing speeches from all of these classmate candidates. And uh, each one of these candidates revealed certain priorities. Uh, each of these candidates, they made fantastic promises to us. Uh, and those promises would be fulfilled. They promised. They would be fulfilled if we would just cast our vote for them and elect them as our class president. Now honestly, I don't remember exactly who I voted for, but I do remember that one promise a candidate made uh, during her, I remember one of these promises that one of the candidates made that day during her speech. She promised that if she was elected, she would install water fountains flowing with Kool-Aid. <laughs> flowing with Kool-Aid instead of water throughout the school. This was her platform. Think about it. Place yourself in a situation like this. After a big game of kickball, Maybe a hot recess. You're coming in to find water fountains dispensing ice-cold Kool-Aid. Imagine bending your sweaty head, pursing your quaking lips into that heavenly liquid arc, and quaffing that sweet nectar to slake your thirst. Kool-Aid! Oh my goodness. It was a wonderful thought indeed. But alas, it was too good to be true. My disillusionment with politics and with politicians, it began very early in life. <laughs> and it all started here. Why? Because we never got Kool-Aid in a single water fountain. Never, never one drop of Kool-Aid came out of any of those water fountains. I spent the rest of my public school career drinking regular old tap water flavored only with chlorine and fluoride. Those are the only flavors I got. Now, I don't remember if this, this candidate, I don't remember if she won the election, and yes, I probably voted for her. That being the case then, I blame her. I blame her for my disappointment. I blame her. I heap all of those broken promises onto her in my recollection. I don't even remember her name. At that age, you see, it wasn't really probably her fault. She was in fourth grade too. 
At that age, I didn't understand. I couldn't understand things like plumbing. I couldn't understand things like uh, large-scale Kool-Aid production, the economics involved. I couldn't understand the, the health ramifications of replacing water with a sugary drink for school children on a daily basis. None of these things crossed my mind. All I cared about was what sounded good to me. I mean, you have to be a communist to not think that Kool-Aid in the water fountain sounds great, right? I mean, that sounded good to me. What I wanted out of life guided my decision making, and that's pretty much how all of American politics works, right? Whatever sounds good to me, whatever I think I will enjoy the most, that's what I will vote for. Now, I'd like to think that we outgrow that mindset, but I hate to be a Debbie Downer. I don't think we do. I'd like to think we outgrow that mindset, uh, that mindset of being directed by our appetites, of voting with our stomachs and just prioritizing pleasure. But as an observer of human nature, I am not sure that we will ever do so. I think that's a default setting in us. Something about us makes us uh, go after that which we crave, prioritize whatever brings us the most pleasure. We are constantly aware of and we are constantly motivated by our sense of want, our sense of need. We are driven to satisfy them. We go about our days always grasping for more and grasping for mine. That's in us. That's what happened in Eden, right? It was the turning of the hand, turning from receiving from God like this and turning the hand to this, to grab, to grab, I must get, I want what is mine. And the enemy doesn't play fair, comes along and says, did God really say? You know, he's keeping you from so much. And that taps into something really deep inside of us. Oh man, I want it. I want it. That sounds good. Therefore, I want it. Now, as a follower of Jesus then, one becomes increasingly aware of both our, our worth and our high calling as a child of God and our persistent fallen nature. This becomes a real problem for those who follow after Jesus because then we're brought into this tension. We become aware of our salvation, of our, of our worth and our calling because of what Jesus has done for us, yet at the same time we become more and more aware of our persistent fallen nature. This creates a double-edged reality, a double-edged reality that creates a powerful tension, a powerful tension that I think we all struggle to get away, with, uh, get away from. With the new eyes that the Holy Spirit indwelling us gives this awareness of our great salvation in Jesus, we experience what I call a push-pull dynamic. In the life of faith, with it comes this push-pull dynamic, um, which pushes us toward God uh, because of His loving kindness, yet at the same time pulls us away because of our awareness of our wretchedness. Do you ever feel that? It's like something about the gospel in our life in Christ like wants us to come close. I, I desire no, nothing more than God Himself. I want Jesus. But then we get there and we're like, oh, oh no. It's like when you, uh, those terrible dreams where you show up at school and you somehow got there in your underwear. You know, it's like, oh, uh, I'm at the right place in the wrong way. I don't, I shouldn't be here like this. Does anyone feel this? The push-pull? We're drawn to God, but then when we're in God's presence, when we feel that, we're like, oh, no, I have no business being here. We carry a deep awareness of our lingering tendency to think with our stomachs. 
We become aware of this lingering tendency to be guided by our lesser desires. And as we grow in Christ-likeness, this fallen nature, this lingering sense starts to reek like decay in us. And we don't like it. We easily default to pursuing what we think we need, employing uh, a decision-making process which is fatally warped by sin and by selfishness. I mean, I hope you're, you've, you can understand this. You can resonate with this. I mean, do you feel this too? I mean, it's because you've started to follow Jesus that you've been led into this tension, right? I mean, things that didn't bother you before you came to Christ... That was great, but now it does. It bothers you now because you have eyes to see. You are being renewed and transformed, and all of a sudden the things that are of the old life, of the flesh, man, they just start to like, oh, that is so wrecked in me. I've got to do something about this. As a result of this awareness and this tension that comes in the Christian life, we can be hesitant, we can find ourselves hesitant to go to God and to pray because why? We carry with us shame. We carry a certain self-consciousness, which we struggle to get rid of. We, we struggle to let go of. And sometimes that's a constant companion when we hear that invitation to come close to God, to pray. We kind of carry this like, oh, I feel gross. I feel gross. I wonder if... Um, if this isn't what kind of Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about who will free me from this body of death. I think I've got Romans 7 on a slide. Romans 7, uh, 21 through 25, uh, Paul says, um, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Same. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. I mean, Paul, he's so honest here. He gets it. He's like, man, I love it that God has saved me. I love what Jesus has accomplished for me, and I truly, truly believe it, and I stake my life on that. Yet, I know that within me there's this law at work, a law of sin and death. Yuck. That's the message, but yeah. Uh, what about Isaiah? Remember that scene from, uh, in, the, in the book of Isaiah in his prophecy? He has this vision of God's presence filling the temple. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 through something. Let's see. 1 through 7. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. And listen for it. It's in here. But you kind of get this sense from Isaiah too. In the year, it was the year, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. What would you do in this situation? Holy, holy moly, this is amazing. But no, what do we see the first words coming out of Isaiah's mouth to be? Verse 4, or verse 5, then he said, it's all over. It's over. Uh, your Bible might say, woe is me, I'm doomed. It says, it's all over, I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. 
Cripes. He had a moment, in that moment, he sensed God's holiness, his righteous wonder, and his innate response was like, oh, oh no, I shouldn't be here. I'm a man with filthy lips. I live among people with, uh, I have no business being here. I have no business seeing this. He felt doom was upon him. So I think in a way, like Paul and like Isaiah, we too can feel out of place around God. Have you ever felt this? We too can feel uh, out of place being around God. We can find ourselves a little bit sheepish when it comes to approaching Him, especially in the area of prayer. Our embarrassment can make us reluctant. Our embarrassment can make us reluctant to ask Him for stuff. It can make us reluctant, reluctant to ask Him all the more so for the same stuff over and over again. We feel like we're overthinking. We become hypercritical of ourselves. We become very, uh, we think, oh, I can't ask because I'm just being self-absorbed. We become hypersensitive to that tendency in us, right? Worse yet, this can lead us to avoid God. Avoid God. Why? Because we're being fickle. Oh, we're being silly. Oh, I'm just being selfish. God's got better things to do. I mean, He's God, right? He is God after all. He's got more important things to do, heavenly things to think about, not my petty requests, not my little needs. In our pursuit of righteousness, of, of, of piety, we can end up not doing what Jesus tells us to do and avoiding the Father because we think we're honoring Him by not bothering Him. Have you found yourself in that place? I know you have. It's like, man, I'm just not going to bug God with that request again. It's so silly. I can just go to the shop and get my, my car fixed. I'll just do it myself. You know, I mean, we can't ask for that silly thing or that thing again, right? Uh, N.T. Wright, he characterizes this feeling well. I remember reading this and it was like, oh, Tom, you get this. He says, I think sometimes our failure to believe Jesus' promises and to act on them, it doesn't come so much from a failure of faith in God, but from a natural human reluctance. Maybe I was taught when I was little not to go on asking for things all the time. It's too long ago to remember now, but I suspect many people have that instinctive reluctance to ask for things. If pressed, they might say it was selfish or that God had better things to do with His time than to provide whatever he, we suddenly happen to want. But this isn't, guys, hear this. Here's the big surprise for the morning, okay? This isn't what Jesus teaches us. This isn't what Jesus tells us. This isn't what he tells us about God in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is eager. Get this. Jesus wants you to know that God welcomes you. God invites you to come close. He encourages you to come close, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Jesus encourages us to be bold enough, be persistent enough to make our requests to God without qualifier. Make your requests. Make your requests. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 if you would. Let's look at verses, uh, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, keep on asking. Imagine the scene. He's on a hillside with all these people around him, just like you and me. Keep on asking. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. 
You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? A familiar passage, but man, do we need to hear it. Man, we need it. Verses 7 and 8. Let's look at that real quick. Keep on asking, Jesus says, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Maybe you've heard this a thousand times. But today, right now, may God give us ears to hear this in a fresh way. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking and you will receive it. You will find it. And that door that you feel has been sometimes slammed in your face, that door will be opened to you. Ask. Seek. Knock. And it will be given to you. You will find it and that door will be opened. We've been through a lot. You've been through a lot. And those words from Jesus can hit in a lot of different ways. How does it make you feel to hear Jesus say that to you? What is your response when you hear him say, hey, keep it up. Ask, seek, knock. You'll, you'll receive it. You'll find it. That door, it will be open to you. Some of you are skeptical. Some of you are cynical. Pretty pessimistic. And some of you are pretty uh, excited to hear that Jesus himself would say that. And that's okay. I'm glad you're in this room. I would think Jesus would be very happy that you were with him that day in Matthew. Here's the thing. When Jesus tells us this, what are we hearing? What are we not hearing? Oh, I'll tell you what we're not hearing. We're not hearing any sort of reticence. We're not hearing, we're hearing none of that reticence that we carry with us or that we assume. We hear none of that reticence reflected in Jesus' words here. None of that eye-rolling that we assume God is doing when we ask again. I mean, do you think that? I, I've got this, like, imagination. <laughs> I've got this thing called an imagination. I imagine God's face-palming himself a lot because of me. You know what a face-palm is? Like, where you just slap your hand to your face like, oh, Adam... But I also imagine he, he rolls his eyes a lot. Like, again? Are you kidding me? Really? Again? You know, I don't know. Does, does, does your imagination see God face-palming and eye-rolling? I do. I don't know. I don't know why that is. But here we see in Jesus' word, none of that is happening. God is not face-palming himself. He is not rolling his eyes because you asked again. Jesus seems us seems to genuinely want us to press deeper into our relationship with God. He, he seems to want us to grow more and more comfortable in asking Him for what we need. I mean, listen to us. That's crazy. But it's Jesus, so we can trust it, right? It's like, hey, press in. Get comfortable. Even if and even when our requests are silly or they're out of line, get this, our requests, they fall on the ears of of a father, of a father who loves us, a father who loves us, and a father who truly wants what is best for us. Just this morning, as an example of a silly request, a, a local father uh, who has a six-year-old, his six-year-old found a cinnamon toast crunch stick of lip balm, and he's like, is this a glue stick? And I said, no, it's lip balm. He's like, oh! 
can I have it? It's like, sure. He's like, I'm going to put it in my pocket. But then he realized he's just wearing a t-shirt and underpants. <laughs> so he's like, can I put it in my waistband? And I said, well, that might not be a good idea because you don't know where it might end up. <laughs> well, he puts it in his waistband. And he goes off and does some other things. And as six-year-olds will, I forgot about it. About half an hour later, he's on this local man's bed uh, goofing around. And all of a sudden, he's like, Oh, where, where'd my lip... Oh, I forgot my, my lip balm's in my underpants. It had fallen from his waistband down into the deeper reaches of his underpants. And then he gets it out. And, and, and as, a father, as a, the local father, he says, Oh, don't put that on your lips without washing it first. Put hand sanitizer on that lip balm before you start putting it on your face. Report. This is what was reported. Um, so he washed it off, but, but you know, it goes back to the like, can I put the lip balm in the waistband of my underpants? And I said, no, probably not. Why? Because I had this perspective. This man, this local man, had this perspective. Man, I'm not very good at this. Um, he had this perspective that said, no, because bad things might happen. You might lose the Cinnamon Toast Crunch lip balm into an, a, an unfortunate place in your underpants. That's exactly what happened. Am I omniscient? No. I've just lived my own story. Uh, this man has lived... Oh, man. I think you know this is me. I think you know it's me telling my story about my son. But you know this story, though. As a parent, if you're a parent... Sometimes our kids come to us and they ask for things that they just have to have. But we know because of experience, because of age, because of just life lived, we know that it's unhealthy for them. We know that it's untimely. We know that it's unrealistic and in some cases maybe even dangerous. And they can't see that and that's okay. You, have a parent, you as a parent have the responsibility to ruin their life in those moments. I mean, I've said it before, but the very act of being a good parent makes you feel awful sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, my job is to ruin my kid's life. That's it. Uh, that's my job as a parent. Thanks, God. You know, thanks for the, 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 the full quiver. As a parent, you have the responsibility to say no sometimes to these things that they have to have because you understand that they're unhealthy, they're untimely, unrealistic, or even dangerous. Thus, we deny the request and we say no, not because we're mean, not because we're cruel, not because we want to ruin their life. It's because we love them. It's because we actually care for them. Right? In the same way, we may run to God in desperation in dire necessity of some felt need, and God, as a good parent, listens to us and then says, no. No. No, I'm not going to do that for you. And we just can't understand why. How can you be a good God? I thought you said you loved me, and you didn't give me what I thought I needed, because you said no. He may not give you what you think you were convinced, so very convinced that you needed. He may not give it to you in the way or the time that you preferred. He may not give it to you at all. But however he responds, know this, God will always love you. God will always be loving you throughout that situation. We can be confident. God always answers our prayer but sometimes the answer is no. 
God always answers prayers, and He will always give us the better thing. And there will come a time in our life, or maybe <laughs> looking back on this life, when we get it. We see, ah, yes, thank you. Garth Brooks was so right. I do thank God for unanswered prayers. Verse 9 through 11. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. <laughs> it's so weird. That's like in the footnotes, like a weirdo. Uh, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? Jesus is drawing a, a very rich parallel, or a very powerful parallel. He says, even you parents who are imperfect... He calls them sinful parents. You imperfect parents, you understand how to give kids. You know how kids are. And you innately, you naturally desire to give them good things. You desire to do what's best for your kids. Now, take that understanding, that small understanding, that small impulse in you, and imagine this. How much more will your perfect Father in Heaven give you what you need? If there's, a, if there's a, a degree of goodness in you, how much more good is it when it's perfected in God? How much more will the imperfect measure in which we give be perfected in God as He gives us what we need in His way and His time? Can we rest in that? Can you rest in that? Can you push back past that cynical, experience-driven uh, attitude? And say, hey, I may not understand it. I may not understand it even in this lifetime. But I will rest in who Jesus tells me God is. I will rest. I'll find comfort in what Jesus says about God's attitude toward me. I'll trust that He is good and that He loves me and that He will care for me in the best way. Now, something I've noticed along the way as we've been working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus returns often to the theme of prayer. Why? Jesus returns often to the theme of prayer in his Sermon on the Mount. This should tell us something. Prayer matters. In the life with Christ, in our relationship, our with God life, prayer matters. Along with Scripture, prayer is a central part of our life with God. There's no way around it. There's no growing. There's no becoming Christ-like. There's no maturing that happens apart from Scripture and from prayer. As Oswald, Oswald Chambers famously observed, prayer is not preparation for work. It is work. Prayer is not preparation for the battle. It is the battle. Prayer is twofold, definite asking and definite waiting to receive. It's that breathing, <laughs> inspiration, expiration. I mean, it was a, well, God, I need you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to wait. I'm going to ask, and then I'm going to wait to receive. What Jesus would say to us here today is, do not neglect prayer. Prayer is your lifeline. Indeed, it is far riskier for us to avoid prayer, to hesitate in asking, than it is to go overboard in asking too much. This was kind of a revelation to me. It's like, man, of our two choices there, which is more risky? Avoiding prayer is far riskier than any risk that goes with asking for too much or going overboard. Trust me. And it's interesting here that Jesus' early followers, they understood this too. They heard this from Jesus and they incorporated that into their understanding, their theological framework, and their life with God. Think about it. 
Jesus' early followers understood we must persist in prayer. Uh, just for two examples, James's bro uh, Jesus' brother named James uh, and the Apostle Paul, they picked up on this and they, they echoed this sentiment. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. You, uh, always be joyful. Never stop praying. Okay, get that? Never stop praying. And then why? Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Have you ever noticed that last part? I mean, we, we talk about the never stop praying part, but why? For this is God's will for you who belong in Christ Jesus. That takes it to the next level, doesn't it? Hey, it's actually God's will for you that you don't stop praying. Keep it up. Keep asking. Stay in conversation with God, for this is God's will for you. Now look at uh, uh, James uh, 4, one. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. There it is. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. James is picking up on something here. He's like, hey, we all sense this lack. We have this deficit. We have this like grasping want for more and for mine. But you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. And you want only what will give you pleasure. And James is picking up on this whole sermon, right? But we don't have because we don't ask. Nothing about the early church... Uh, the early followers, the apostles, the disciples, uh, sounds like, hey, pace yourself. <laughs> Take it easy. Quit bugging God. No, they all picked up on Jesus' ethos of like, hey, a big part of following me, a big part of the with God life is persistence in prayer. By default, knee-jerk response, let's ask God for it. Let's go to God for it. Persist in prayer. You don't have it because you don't ask for it. When you do ask, ask with the right motives. Set your heart on trusting in Him. Be assured, when it comes to prayer, Jesus is telling the truth. Trust me, Jesus isn't standing on this hillside in Matthew telling a bunch of half-truths or lies. Jesus is telling the truth. God really doesn't mind. God really doesn't mind. He desires us to pray. He desires us to, as Philip Yancey says, keep company with Him. Prayer is keeping company with God, and I love that description because it means it sounds like we're just a, we're comfortable around Him. We've just got time to spend there and just have conversation and to ask, even the silly things, the vulnerable things. Um, I've got a picture to really drive this home, but uh, as uh, Wayne Gretzky and Michael Scott famously said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen if you ask God for something dumb? I mean, think about it. What's the worst that can happen if you ask God for something dumb? Uh, what if you ask Him for something that's not in your best interest? What if you ask Him for a, a Kool-Aid water fountain? He says no. And I've found that when God says no, I'm always being presented then with an opportunity to grow. So God says no, I'm given an opportunity to grow, and then we move on. We go on living. 
and we grow along the ways. At the base level, at the foundational level, something valuable is happening whenever you interact with God in prayer, even if you're doing it wrong. Okay? Just let that burden slip off your back for a little bit. Something valuable is happening anytime you interact with God in prayer, even if you're all thumbs, even if you're clumsy, even if you're doing it wrong, even if you can't in that moment get your eyes off of yourself. Why? Because of this. In prayer, we're doing our best to just spend time with God, to turn toward Him, and this then creates the essential context for growth and transformation. This becomes the essential laboratory in which we discover more and more about what it means to pursue Christ-likeness. Making ourselves available to God, it creates space. It creates opportunity to grow in our understanding, to allow God to open our eyes and to calibrate, recalibrate our hearts and to renew our minds by His grace. Time spent in prayer is never wasted time. Is never wasted. Man, I did it. I, I prayed terribly. That was the most self-absorbed, I, 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 I-driven prayer I've ever prayed. It's not wasted. It's not wasted. Keep at it. Let the Holy Spirit correct you. But keep at it. Time spent in prayer is never wasted time. And as we go on praying, we will always find ourselves changing. You cannot commit yourself to a practice of prayer and not find yourself changing along the way. As we return regularly to that deep well of prayer, we will find our wills becoming more aligned with God's will. It's inevitable. Our desires will fall more in line with God's desires for our lives. We'll start to want the things that God wants. Again, N.T. Wright helps us here. He says, If God is a father, let's treat him as a father, not as a bureaucrat or a dictator who wouldn't want to be bothered with our trivial or irrelevant concerns. You know, it's up to him to decide if he's too busy for us, not us. <laughs> the fact that there, are, there may be a war going on in one country, a famine somewhere else, earthquakes, tragic accidents, murder and pillage all over the place, and that he is grieving over all of them, this might be a problem for a high-ranking authority at the United Nations, but it is not a problem whatsoever for our loving Father. When God says He's got time, space, and love to spare for us, we should take Him at His word. Of course, as we become mature children, we will increasingly share His concerns for His suffering and sorrowing world. We will want to pray for it more than we pray for ourselves. But within the kingdom prayer that Jesus taught us, as well as praying for God's will to be done on earth, we are taught to pray for what we ourselves need here and now. So, what's stopping us? What's stopping us? So ask, seek, and knock, my friends. That's what I want to leave you with today. Ask, seek, and knock. Let's obey Jesus in this. Keep praying. Ask, seek, and knock. We are all welcome in God's presence. Jesus himself assures us that we are welcome in God's presence, and he should know. He assures us we're welcome in God's presence. He assures us that our prayers are heard. And He assures us that God, our good Father, He desires to give us all that we need. Rest in that. So indeed, what is stopping us?
in you? What has been stopping you from being comfortable around God? What is stopping you from actually keeping company with Him and having that ongoing dialogue? Asking for silly things. Asking for meaningful things. Asking for things that are still far obscure to you, but you don't know, but you know that there's a need there. Praying for what's going on in the world. Lifting your needs to Him. What's stopping you? Let us go today to God in confident hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that encouragement. We thank you for the words of Jesus that would say, hey, just set it all down. All your assumptions, all your attitudes, all your preconceived ideas, all your cynicism and pessimism, set it down and come close that the Creator God of the universe would do all of this so that He could step into the role of Father to us. That Jesus would come proclaiming God is a good Father that loves us. And it brings Him joy to have you come close and keep company with Him. That Jesus would ease our fears and say, hey, stop worrying about the quality of your prayer requests. Just ask. Just ask and keep asking. And then pray also for the grace to receive uh, an answer that's different than the one you want. May we all rest, hear Jesus' words, and rest in the knowledge that God loves us and He will always do what's best for us according to His way and His will, according to His time. Lord, I know that uh, this room is filled with some people that have been beat up. They've been through a lot. They've uh, been through a lot of disappointment. They've been through a lot of grief and a lot of times where they feel like the door of heaven has been slammed in their face. And so I know that these words from Jesus can sometimes feel a little too simple. But I pray that today we'd hear their adequacy, their sufficiency, that we would hear Jesus say, hey, what you've been through is not more powerful than what God has promised. So God, I pray that we would become a people that are practicing prayer that we're bringing all of ourselves into that space and we're just offering ourselves and then allowing, inviting the Holy Spirit to change us, to grow us, to renew us and transform us. God, we understand that uh, we're not going to grow to be more like Jesus unless we're um, consuming the Word and, and uh, diving deep into prayer. And so, God, I pray that you give us the determination and the discipline to do those things. And then may you be glorified in that. And may, over time, we start to see uh, growth in ourselves. May we start to see with new eyes those things that we used to just uh, drive us. Those things that used to drive us. Those things that we just had to have. They start to uh, become diminished. They grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, thank you for Jesus and the simple promise that you love us, that you care for us, and you want us to keep company with you. God, teach us to pray. I pray for my friends who uh, might struggle in this moment. I pray that this would be a, a time of, uh, of renewal for them, a, a springtime of sorts, as they uh, just turn toward you maybe for the first time in a long time. I pray also for my friends who've never trusted Jesus. This is God with us coming to say, hey, I desire communion with you. I desire you to come close and be in the family and it all begins with faith and so I pray for anyone here who's hearing this invitation trust in Jesus Christ follow Jesus Christ and find yourself welcomed into God's family 
Lord, we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, we're going to pray a bit more. We're going to sing a song. And this is time to set aside to do nothing but pray. <laughs> How great is that? Maybe you've gone all week without really praying. Maybe this is the first time. How sweet is that? For three or four minutes, just sit, pray, keep company with God. Have that conversation you've been waiting to have. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be at the back. Curtis is back there. Come and pray. Just make the most of this opportunity.